This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and one of my favourite shows that I've ever done was our last one with David Scott over two years ago now. It's a great episode, and if you haven't checked it out, it really is a must. But I'm thrilled to welcome David back to the show today to discuss a very specific topic, the nine-stage model to get a B2B software company to get repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth. Before we dive in, and for some context, David is a general partner at Matrix Partners, the firm with a portfolio including the likes of HubSpot, Zendesk, Cora, and CloudBeast, to name a few. As for David, he started his first company in 1977, aged just 22. Since then, David has founded a total of four separate companies and performed one turnaround. Three of those companies went public. David then joined Matrix from Silverstream Software, and prior to its acquisition, Silverstream was a public company that had reached a revenue run rate in excess of $100 million, with approximately 800 employees and offices in more than 20 countries. And David is also the author of 4entrepreneurs.com, the must-read blog in the world of SaaS metrics. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Cordoba. Cordoba is the leading AI writing assistant used by companies like Intuit and Twitter to keep content on brand. These days, literally everyone with a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For SASTA listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year for their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta. That's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way of attracting new customers, but another way is to increase conversion and to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements. Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including leaders of industry like Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax. And as a special offer for SASTA listeners, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired those customers, that's just the beginning. And that's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit zohocrm.com forward slash and then hit the get started button. It's as simple as it sounds. Start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Again, sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM at zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta. But that's enough from me. So now I'm very excited to hand over to David Scott, general partner at Matrix Partners for this incredible masterclass. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. David, what can I say? I've wanted to do this one for such a long time following our first episode. One of my favorites to do. So thank you so much for joining me again, once again. Harry, great to be back with you and uh, looking forward to doing this. Now, for those that maybe missed the first episode when maybe only my mother was listening, how did you make your way into the world of venture and come to be a GP at Matrix today in a swift three to four minutes? So I graduated with a computer science degree in the early days of that craft. And a few months after leaving college, I found a problem and I wrote some code to solve it and accidentally, without even thinking 
what I was doing, I ended up creating a startup. It became quite successful and over a period of time evolved and then actually got into trouble because the platform that it was based on got replaced by the PC. But I ended up doing another four startups, so five in total. And the last two were backed by Matrix Partners. And they stood out so strongly to me as being a really different and great firm to work with that when they asked me to join them, which was actually amazingly enough, it's 19 years ago now, I was thrilled with the idea and really, really loved the culture of what I was going to be doing, which was really, truly about helping entrepreneurs. So that's how I got in. Listen, incredible firm. And we had Ilya on the show recently, and I absolutely loved that episode. I do have to ask one before we dive into the meat of the show, and it is off schedule. But I have a few repeat founders on the show, and they say, Harry, it never gets easier, but it does get different. Just have to ask, given the five different companies that you founded, would you agree with that it doesn't get easier, it gets different? Or actually, do some things get a little bit easier with experience? I think it gets a lot easier, actually, to be honest with you. I think, number one, you gain a reputation that allows you to raise money far easier. Number two, you have a team of people that you've worked with before and some of whom will come along with you. Number three, you typically have some customers who will just talk to you automatically. So you've got some ability of that. And then number four, you've got some of the ideas that I now have much, much more clearly codified. But this nine-step model that we're going to walk through today, you're not going to make as many mistakes as you would have done the very first time around because you have already made some of them and you'll avoid them. So actually, I'm definitely a believer that it, it definitely gets easier. And I think we see that in our venture investments too. If we can find a serial entrepreneur, that's generally one of the most good indicators that will help you think that they're going to be more successful than perhaps somebody who's coming into it first time around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially, I think, when it comes to enterprise and kind of high ACV sales. You mentioned the nine-stage model there. I do want to dive into that because you've said before about the nine-stage model to get a B2B company to repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth. So if we start today on the hailed and much-discussed topic of product market fit, there's a common assumption that you find product market fit and then just aggressively scale. But you said before that there's an important step missing when it comes to B2B. So what's the missing step here, David? Yeah, the missing step is that product market fit will work very well in a consumer environment and allow you to scale. But in a B2B environment, you have to figure out what your sales motion is. And that's actually several steps broken down that will take it down. The first one, I think, is to figure out how to repeatedly sell what you've got. Then once you've got it repeatable, you then need to figure out, can you scale what you've repeated there and, and actually ramp that up and add more people in? And will it keep just repeating after you've tried to scale it? And then after you've got it scalable, you're going to need to figure out, can you make it profitable? And is this thing actually a worthwhile thing to do? I want to sort of emphasize the fact that those three words, repeatable, scalable, and profitable, are really interesting words. They're super easy to say, but actually very hard to achieve in practice, which is why the step is not a quick and easy step, and it's not predictable how long it's going to take. But if you've got something that's repeatable and predictable, and you can scale it, and every time you do it, it's profitable, you've actually invented a money-making machine. And it turns out that growth investors really understand this very well, and this is exactly what they're looking for. So if you're able to get repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth, you then are at this magical point where your company is far more valuable, and you're able to really hit the gas and just simply repeat this thing that you figured out, and you just simply print more money. For every dollar that goes in, you're able to print way more dollars coming out the far end of the thing. It might take some time before you get the dollars out, but that's something that investors have no problem with at all. Can I dive in and ask, you say about the cash machine there, and absolutely it is if you have those economics, but sometimes in the early days, the CACs look good, actually. You haven't hit saturation rates yet, and actually it's a very unit economically efficient model, but then suddenly CACs start to saturate and you don't have diversified marketing channels, and the unit economics that may be fundamentally different from how they did before, and it's no longer profitable or scalable. How do you think about the transition 
transition from scalable, profitable, repeatable to not when CACs explode and marketing channels are constrained over well, time? You, you asked a great question there. And it's sort of a problem that I helped create because I was one of the very first people back in 2008 that wrote about unit economics and got everybody excited about the importance of them and why they should be thinking about them. But I made a mistake, which is I didn't tell people that there was a point in time in your company's evolution where it was really too early to measure them. And that point is it's too early to measure unit economics, CAC and LTV, if you haven't hit the point where you already have a repeatable and scalable sales process. And so the situation that you just described a second ago, where initially unit economics looked great, but then then deteriorated when you tried to scale it, is exactly why I would say don't worry about profitability in the point where you're not yet repeatable and scalable. Because what happens is when you try to scale lead gen, for example, in the early days, you might have plenty of leads coming in just through inbound marketing with people finding your website, but that's not scalable. And when you start trying to support a 10-person sales force going up to a 20-person, going up to a 50-person sales force, the amount of lead flow you have to generate gets much higher than that. And therefore, that organic lead generation probably not going to work any longer, and you're going to have to pay a lot more money to find those leads. And you may not have some of the sales expenses in the very early days that you then later on discover are necessary to really scale what you've got. So hence, the situation you described is where somebody's looking at unit economics too early, where they just aren't ready to measure them. And you're only really ready to measure them when you're truly predictable and truly scalable. That's not to say you shouldn't be looking at them early, because it's very important to know, are you already off track before you even start trying to scale things, in which case you should make some adjustments to what market you're going after, what prices you're charging, but recognize that they're not going to be reliable unit economics at all until you've proven that your process is scalable. So if that's one mistake, maybe in terms of measuring those unit economics, maybe slightly too early or focusing on them too early, you see many founders facing these kind of three sub-phases being kind of the repeatable, scalable, and profitable element. What other mistakes or what is the core mistake that you see most often? Well, the biggest mistake, and I see this just all the time, it's beyond belief how frequent it is, is that companies want to rush through these phases and they skip them. So one of the most common examples would be that before the founders have figured out how to sell the product, they'll go and hire salespeople, traditional ordinary salespeople, and those salespeople will turn up at the company and say, okay, how do we sell? What's the playbook? And there's no playbook to hand to them, so they're completely unsuccessful. Or they'll start really trying to force growth in the company before it's ready for growth because it doesn't have anything that's repeatably working by hiring a lot of salespeople when it's not even crystal clear how your first set of salespeople can actually effectively work through this process yet. Another example would be earlier on in the thing, I think one of the most common mistakes I see people make is right in the very early stages, they go and build the product before they've done the validation with customers to figure out if this is actually something that the market wants to buy. And then unfortunately, then they've got a real problem, which is too much bias around what they've built, as opposed to really open ears to actually hear what the customers are telling them about what they'd like to see. So if we avoid those, sorry, again, I'm getting off schedule, but I am too interested. If we avoided those mistakes, and actually we do have that humming machine and all looks good. The only other question I have is externalities. And the one that often comes to mind is a real trouble for me often, actually, is just market size. I don't know often how to think about it and how to assess it, but it can be one of the core limitations on the efficiency of your sales funnel, the efficiency of your sales reps, whatever that is. How do you think about market size as a barrier to this repeatable, scalable, profitable? And what's the right way to think about it? Yeah, I do think market size is extremely important and really should be addressed right in the very early pre-product market fit phase. Because if you're not going after a large enough TAM, then you can't raise capital and you will have great difficulty building any kind of a decent business here. So 
to our mind, I think when any venture capitalist is investing in markets, one of the very first questions they're asking themselves is, is this a big opportunity? And the founder should be doing the same thing as well. So Tam, I think you should be addressing in a way before you even get to this phase of trying to build your repeatable and scalable sales process. And if the Tam isn't big enough, you're much better off saying, okay, let's either recognize there's going to be a tiny little business and not raise venture capital or build a large organization around it, or scrap the idea and go after something that's different. No, I, I do agree with you on the importance of market size early on. I do want to ask you, because you mentioned there about venture financing. If we get back to the repeatable, scalable, uh, profitable, how does this mean then that founders should attach budget and spend according to each sub-phase? And I guess, how do they know when to transition from phase to phase? So to my mind, there is something really important that I've learned about both searching for product market fit phase and searching for this repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth machine. Neither one of them is predictable in how long it's going to take. So you'll often see founders making a plan where they say, yeah, we're, we're going to have repeatable, scalable, profitable growth within nine months from now. Well, that just isn't predictable at all. And any plan like that is really just a swag and a guess. And the number one thing that that tells me is that since it's unpredictable and you aren't ready to scale, you should be lowering your expenses as much as you possibly can do while you're in the search for product market fit or the search for a repeatable and scalable growth process. And only when you are crystal clear that you've got this repeatable, scalable and profitable growth process, everything switches and changes in the company. And it's very funny how often founders actually have a hard time throwing that switch and really being aggressive enough in actually adding to the growth engine and hiring enough salespeople and really being foot down on the pedal, the accelerator pedal, to scale as fast as they should do at that point in time, because they've been so used to saving money. But having said all of this, I think that's the least of our worries, that mistake. The much more common mistake that I see over and over and over again is companies blowing their budget because they thought they could force progress through this repeatable, scalable stages and do that by spending money. And it never works. They always have to come back and finish the stage that they failed to finish. And they are going to have problems because they have, for example, too many salespeople of the wrong kind when they're trying to simply find a repeatable model. So it might be worth our while, if you're okay with me doing that, to just jump into that very first step here, because I do think there's a really interesting problem that I see coming up here. And it's like a natural follow-on from what we've been talking about. I would love you to. Totally. Take it away. Okay, great. So imagine you're right at the very beginning of this search for a repeatable and scalable process. What it looks like is you know there's a path out there somehow or another to how you close customers, but you don't have a road map for what that path looks like. And there's a whole bunch of important things that you're going to be trying to learn here. You're going to be looking for this question about who are you selling to? Have you identified a really interesting problem that the customers are going to pay for that? Will the customers actually pay for this? And which target market should you go after? So often companies have a solution that could actually go after maybe several different verticals, but each time they apply it to a different vertical, the product needs to change slightly. So they actually should focus in on a single target market. Who do you need to sell to in the organization? What specific use case and pain point are you trying to target with the product? What's your messaging going to be? How are you going to find prospects and fill up the top of your funnel? How will you engage with those prospects? What's your sales motion look like? What price points will you sell at? What specific new product features are going to be needed to really actually have these customers purchase from you? What is an ideal customer profile, ideal prospect look like? And what defines a bad prospect that you shouldn't sell to that because they're going to lose you money? And then what kind of an organization, what type of salespeople do you need? Do you need field salespeople? Do you need telesalespeople? Do you need business development reps? What kind of customer success processes do you need? So all of these are the things that we don't know at the point where we're starting this journey that we need to figure out. And I think it's really interesting to understand that when you hire a traditional salesperson, they actually expect you to 
to know all of those things and to have a sales playbook and be able to sit them down when they arrive and run them through an onboarding process where you teach them these things and they just simply execute your playbook. And the last thing you want in a salesperson is somebody who's constantly trying to reinvent your playbook because you've often spent you know months at great cost to figure out exactly how to message and how to sell and what the right way to do this is. And you don't want salespeople trying to reinvent that. So ordinary salespeople run the playbook. But now imagine a situation where you hire an ordinary salesperson into your company and there is no playbook. They're simply going to fail. They just don't have the tools that they need to be able to be successful. So in this very first stage here, searching for a repeatable process, my advice is to, first of all, have the founders be the people who are going to make the first sales. And possibly if they're going to need it, because some founders are really just do need some help in selling, they need to hire where I call a trailblazer pathfinder sales rep. And that's a very different kind of person to this traditional ordinary sales rep. There's somebody who understands that they're working in an environment with nothing known, and they're really good and smart at going out there and running different experiments and trying to reach different people and trying out different messages and understanding that the product isn't necessarily right and what might be needed in the way of features to finish off the product that might get this person to buy and running experiments on what the pricing needs to be to really make the sale work and that kind of thing to help define what this playbook is. And you are only really ready to leave this repeatable phase when it's crystal clear that the founders can sell the product and possibly one or two trailblazer salespeople have been able to sell the product. And they've been able to not just sell it, but they've also done the work to document what they've done. So they're ready to bring on board an ordinary salesperson and test trying to train that ordinary salesperson on this path that they've worked out and see if the ordinary salesperson can actually follow that same path successfully. So that's when you get into the beginning of the next phase where you're starting to say, okay, can I make this thing scale? So you then hire two ordinary salespeople and the founder's job changes significantly from all of a sudden from being focused on selling, 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 their new job should be enabling. How do I enable this new ordinary salesperson? What materials are needed to help them learn what we were doing? Coaching, what training can I use to help them get up to speed as fast as possible? Because the easy mistake to make here is for the founder to keep selling and think that things are fine because they're driving revenue like that. But actually, that's just going to limit the growth of the company. The company cannot scale because there's only one or two founders if you rely on them. You're going to have to make the transition to being able to have ordinary salespeople have a playbook that they can execute. Can I dive in and ask, just um, too interested, what's great sales rep productivity to you, one? And then two, if you hire, say, four to six new sales reps, how many would you expect to not work out? So sales rep productivity and then churn of the initial cohort. Yeah. So one way that I think about sales rep productivity is pretty simple, which is if they cost you, let's say an inside sales rep might cost you 60K in base salary and then another 60K if they hit their target. So then 120K total on target earnings. I would like to get back from them at least four times that in the way of quota that they achieve and ideally probably higher than that. So four to six is the numbers that we should have as targets to go for for what quota should be set at. And you see some companies that are highly productive achieve significantly higher numbers than that when they're obviously the standouts. And it's it's pretty hard to get to the numbers that I've just described there in the early days of a company when you're trying to figure this out. So don't be too upset if you're not yet at the 4X number, but know for sure that if you don't get beyond that, you're not going to have a very profitable company in the long run. And I think you asked the second question, which what would you expect if you had four or five sales reps? So let me just kick off something here and say that I recommend that as you're going through this transition from repeatable, where the founders have been able to sell, to the scalable phase where you're trying to bring on these ordinary reps, that you don't hire more than two at a time. Why two? Well, it's better than one because if one of them happens to not be a good person and can't sell, you've at least got some protection that you're going to see that it was just a bad 
quite high rather than a real problem with your process. But why not more than two? Well, you're going to be just burning a ton of cash and it's going to be much harder to be trying to figure out what's going on. And, and as you start passing this knowledge across to four salespeople versus what it is when you're running to two, and your burn rate's just going to be a lot higher at a time when you don't know predictably if this is actually going to work or not work. And so you shouldn't be burning money until you're really confident that it is going to work. Can I ask, and today, and this is essentially an interesting question to answer. So I, I apologies for this one. Such large rounds are happening so early. I mean, I'm seeing 100 million posts, 200 million posts for one, two, three million in ARR when generally their sales team isn't baked out and they probably don't have the repeatable predictable process that we're talking about here. But then they suddenly get a 30 to 40 million round and get told to spend, spend, spend. How should they be thinking? And what is the right approach? I'm glad you brought that up because this is literally one of the really terrible things that's happening in the venture tech world right now are these rounds that effectively force people to try to skip these steps. And I've seen it myself in companies where we've invested at you know these higher price points because the company's got really an attractive big market and good founders, et cetera. And we've seen those founders be under enormous pressure to suddenly deliver results, which they're not ready to do. And they then end up discovering, oh my God, we hired the wrong people. We have to get rid of those people. And they have to go back and rework through the step that I've mentioned to you, which is where everybody gets to understand that we don't have a repeatable process here and we have to start at square one and work our way through that. And we're not going to do that by hiring a ton of ordinary sales reps that don't have a clue how to run through that process. I think it's deeply expensive for those companies. I think it creates incredible mistakes. I'm seeing those mistakes over and over and over again in the tech world. And my strongest advice to people is just recognize that you're not at that step where you're ready to scale, stick that money in the bank, hang on to it like crazy and go through these steps religiously and rigorously. And I think the good news is these steps are incredibly commonsensical. It doesn't take a you know genius to understand that what I'm saying here makes sense. So people are just keen to try to force things and spending money doesn't actually accomplish that. I'm so glad I'm not alone in being concerned about that. I do want to go back to that kind of initial onboarding of the sales rep though. And I, I want to ask David, because you've seen so many different companies scale so efficiently their sales model and their sales teams. But yep. why do many not hit their plans? What's the common cause there? Well, there's actually a whole bunch of factors. So I'm not certain I could give you such a lovely, clear answer, but I would go back to these steps here for a second. So I would check that the first steps have been met. So do we really truly have product market fit? Because if we're trying to get salespeople to sell and there isn't true product market fit, that's a huge mistake. You know, you've, you've jumped ahead too quickly and you've got to go back and say, is this product genuinely working for our customers? And when they see it and they understand what it's capable of doing for them, do they immediately want to buy it? Because if that's not true and you've got a whole bunch of salespeople out there, they're going to be floundering and trying to you know, push something that isn't really ready to be sold and isn't maybe finished. So I would start with the product and check and validate whether the product itself is actually working. The customers are not churning. They're happy with it. They're getting the business benefits from it. They're going to be referenceable. If that's all correct, then you're now into the step of, is your process repeatable? Do you have real clarity on who you're trying to sell to? Are you absolutely focused on a single use case initially? I see many companies cannot make that focus choice because it means saying no to opportunities and people have a hard time saying no to opportunities. So they try to focus on multiple use cases. The net result is their messaging's all over the place and their product features aren't right for each of those use cases. And instead of getting them right for one use case, they're trying to sort of incrementally make small changes to satisfy a bunch of use cases, but never getting fully there for each of those use cases. You know, have they figured out what's the right way to really run the sales playbook? And again, that's going to be different for each use case and for each different target market. And I think a lot of people fail to make that choice of focusing in. I can tell you the story of HubSpot in the early days, if you're interested. I would love to hear that. I'm a big HubSpot user and 
fans. So that'd be awesome. Well, HubSpot had two founders and it had two different visions of who the ideal customer was. Marketing Mary was one of them. That was a marketing persona who existed inside of a company where there was a different CEO. It's a reasonable sized company. And then there was owner Ollie, where instead of the company being big enough to have a marketing person, the owner was doing the marketing themselves. One of the founders loved owner Ollie and the other founder was more supportive of Marketing Mary. The net result was that they argued for years and years and years and never settled in on one of these particular markets. And that meant that you had different organizations like the product organization. What was needed for owner Ollie was a completely different product to what was needed for Marketing Mary. The messaging was going to be different. The customer success, the onboarding, all of that stuff is going to be different. And they never settled on that. And so the net result was a ton of churn. And only finally, about three years or so into the business, did they finally settle in on the fact that now they needed to focus on Marketing Mary. And once they did that, everything changed. It was a really potent uh, moment in the company's history where they would tell you this was one of the key growth moments when they settled in and focused on that single persona there. Can I dive in? You said there about the churn of, you know, when they chose both of them, so to speak, and the challenges that that caused. How do you think about kind of churn stay being regrettable and non-regrettable and whether founders should be woeful of all churn or actually whether some churn is healthy given your discovery of market fit within the persona that you're looking to target? Yeah, I mean, I think in the very early days, you don't know for certain which is the best segment to go after. So it's good to have a set of places that you've done some scoring work on to see are these you know potentially good places for us to go after. And then maybe you run trials in, say, three market areas, and you then watch what happens in those three to figure out which of them is really the best one for you to go after and validate that you know these, these ideas that you had when you were hypothesizing which could be a good segment, which is actually the best. And at the moment where you've hit that, then I think it's very good that you churn out the others and really don't worry about them any longer. Or even if you figured out a particular segment that you want to go after, there's then going to come this concept of an ideal customer profile, an ICP. And in the ICP definition, you're going to find that there are certain customers that are unprofitable for you. They might just be too small. They might actually be too big where you can't satisfy them well with the features that you've got. And you'll just churn around trying to you know, keep them happy when really the product isn't ready for them at all. And so being willing to churn out those customers that are not ideal for you and focus in on the set of customers that are ideal is something that requires a ton of discipline again, because you're saying no to opportunities and people really have a hard time with that, but they, they should do it in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I do totally agree in terms of really focusing on our ICP. I do want to ask the other reason that I often see for reps really not being able to hit quota is actually a lack of high quality lead flow. I'd love to discuss marketing. How do you think about the lack of quality lead flow really influencing hitting sales rep quota? And then how do you advise founders on when to arm the first few sales reps? We mentioned the first two there. How do we arm them with the marketing team alongside it? So yeah, I think one of the questions that as you're going through this business of trying to figure out scalable, the scalable phase, you're obviously not going to be smart to hire salespeople when you don't have enough lead flow to provide to them. And expecting sales reps to go and generate their own leads, it's a possible thing to have them do. But honestly, it's one of the most expensive ways to run a salesperson. It's just not effective. They don't love doing it. They'll do everything they can do to avoid doing it. And really, it's a far less effective way of doing it than using marketing. So I think everybody understands these days, or at least I hope they understand that the way to tie marketing and sales together is pretty simple, which is there is an easy way to figure out through watching conversion rates in your whole sales funnel, how many marketing qualified leads or sales accepted leads are needed to close a single deal. And therefore, once you know that, how many single deals does a sales rep have to close in order to hit their quota? And if it's say four deals, then you have to multiply by four that number of marketing qualified leads per 
per sales rep that you have to figure out how many leads are needed to support your entire sales organization. And this reaches into the scalability thing, which is does marketing have a scalable way to generate lead flow? Because if it doesn't, you're not ready to pass out of that scalable phase at all until you've figured that one out. And it's a hard one to figure out. I think it's where a lot of companies get stumped and they, you know, they can support maybe four sales reps, maybe possibly another fifth one. They're certainly not ready to scale at the kind of rate that we did at, at HubSpot where we were adding two sales reps per month because we easily had cracked the flow of leads at that particular point in the company history. Can, can I ask, when, when we measure marketers' success, how should they be measured? Because I always struggle slightly when, you know, they're rewarded or compensated on MQLs or even, you know, sales accepted leads. I always think they should be tied directly to a number associated to revenue. Am I being a bit short-sighted and forgetting brand marketing there and other forms of marketing? And how do you think about like measuring the success of marketing in kind of hard cash? Right. You do want them focused on MQLs. You do want a clear contract to exist between sales and marketing for the number of MQLs that they have to deliver. But if you're going to compensate them, you need to look at the second factor there, which is, is the conversion rate of marketing qualified leads through to closed deals holding steady at the level that you initially set it at? Or is it getting better? In which case you can pay them more. If it's getting worse, then clearly they're bringing in leads that they're qualifying, but they aren't actually really good leads that the company can close. So even though they're not fully responsible for that second phase of the salesperson closing the leads that they're providing to them, you do need to tie their compensation, I believe, to that conversion rate that takes place between a marketing qualified lead and a fully closed piece of business and the dollars that come from it. So you may be, for example, able to bring in leads that result in much larger deals. That's great for them. If they suddenly start producing lots of leads, but they're only resulting in tiny deals, clearly that's not a good thing and they shouldn't be rewarded quite as much. So tying their compensation to what's good for the company is the right thing to do. Can I ask, should they be rewarded for upsell opportunity in the future? Because they could bring in a small account in the early days and the startup that they've brought in a year ago suddenly turns into one of the fastest growing startups and their budgets increase and they become one of your biggest companies. Should they have like continuation of tracking throughout the upsell process as well, given they're bringing them in? In theory, yes. In practice, that sounds like it might be a hard thing to do. So I think a better way to accomplish that is through the ideal customer profile definition and rewarding for MQLs that fit the ideal customer profile. So in many companies, we see that there are certain accounts that you know have a huge expand opportunity after your initial land and certain other types of prospects where they're just not that big of a company. So you split those lead types into two different segments and you reward marketing higher for leads that come in in the higher segment that has that much greater ability to expand. I think if you try to keep tracking expansion revenue, it's going to happen so much further down the field you know, in terms of time that it's just not going to really resonate that crystal clearly with what do I need to do right now as a marketing person to make sure the business is successful. So I think by tying it to an ideal customer profile and saying, look, you brought in 50 leads here, 20 of them fit this really ideal customer profile that we know fits in our super large category, enterprise category, whatever you want to call it, that can expand a lot more. We'll pay you more for those leads than we will do for the other 30 leads where they've fallen into the second segment that we have that doesn't have as much growth capacity. You mentioned the expansion revenue there. It gets onto a topic that I'm super passionate about, which is kind of customer success. And you said before, David, ensure customer success. I'd love to dive in on this. We spoke about kind of how the marketing team can really feed the sales team, how we should structure the sales team and then kind of scale it for growth. How should we think about scaling CS the first time to hire our first CS and the right way to approach CS really as a segment in itself within your company? Yeah. One thing that might help people that are listening to this podcast is if they manage to get this nine-step diagram in front of them to at least see where the step that we're talking about now fits. So the step we're talking about, which is ensure customer 
customer success comes in, generally speaking, right after you've started to figure out scalability. And the reason why it fits there is that most of the time I've seen companies, once they start getting scaling going, they run into some additional new customer success problems that they hadn't anticipated because they started selling a little bit too aggressively and broadly. And they now need to go back and do some things like tamping down who they sell to and stopping the sales reps from over-promising and fixing a bunch of issues, um, fixing the actual customer success organization to also scale and handle that. So that's a separate stage there. But to go right back to the very beginning, the question you asked me, which is when should you hire your first customer success person? I think the answer to that is going to come out during the repeatable phase because you're going to work out that in order to repeatably successfully sell somebody and also onboard them and get them using the product successfully, you may or may not need people to do that. Some products are sufficiently simple and straightforward that they don't need a customer success organization. Others may need a very intense form of customer success where there's even you know on-premise onboarding taking place. Hopefully not because it's very expensive. So that's the stage where you're going to work out what kind of staffing you need for customer success. And then later on, I think you're going to have to revisit customer success after you've started to figure out scaling because it almost invariably breaks, in my opinion, and you're going to have to refix it at that point in time. That makes sense? That totally makes sense. Well, sorry, there's one other question you asked me that I did want to answer here, which is the question you asked was, how should a company think about customer success? And one thing that I think is a huge mistake is to believe that customer success is only the job of the customer success department. And so I think customer success is the entire company's job. It can be fixed by people in the product development area by putting less bugs into the product or making the product so much easier to understand and just simply learn and have self-service in it versus have to phone a human being. It can be fixed by people in the documentation area. It can be fixed by the salespeople not overselling and not over-positioning the product or finding the right people to sell to and not selling it to the wrong people where you know it's going to fail. So it really should be something that the entire company knows that they own. And yes, you're going to have to have a customer success department that really perhaps has a more direct contact with people after they've purchased the product to try to ensure that they get onboarded correctly. But never forget the importance of recognizing that product should be thinking about it. The engineers should be thinking about it, the documentation people, even the accounting department in terms of how they chase up money, they can also have an impact on whether you retain customers and have happy customers, etc. So it's really right throughout the organization. I mean, my word, I'm so pleased you said about that because more and more today, I see marketing departments and especially kind of content teams working on content directly aimed at customer success and really kind of achieving the upsell opportunities that are available. And so my question to you is, are we not seeing the blurring of lines, so to speak, in terms of marketing permeating into both sales and actually customer success and then also sales into customer success in the way that relationships are built in the sales process and it's difficult then to hand off. Are we seeing the blurring of lines between these functions, do you think? Yes, absolutely. This is one of my strong themes here is that if you want to get a successful growth team, the growth team needs to have members of the product team, the sales team, the marketing team, and the customer success team. And it's probably got to have the CEO as the person who's actually helping run and and bring all of those groups together to stop thinking like silos. And the tool that I believe is the tool that creates the right kind of unification of those groups is the following. It's a diagram of the buyer's journey where you break out into steps. And this is typically, hopefully, something that exists on a large whiteboard in a room. And it has clearly marked on there what are the key things that happens to a buyer as they start going through the journey of looking for a product in your space, finding your product, testing your product out, maybe doing a POC or an evaluation, then bringing it in to the company, and then what's needed for the success of that, and then what's needed to make that expand. And then below that should be the diagram of what is our steps? You know, What are the things that we do? What do our salespeople do? When do we introduce BDRs to try to 
cool and what marketing things are we doing here. And those two diagrams, which I very rarely ever find in existence, but when I help make them come into existence, they create something extraordinary, which is they trigger really fabulous creative dialogue between these four different groups here about how you can fix the blockage points in those diagrams. And every single company in the world has major blockage points in those funnels and they don't work as well as they would like them to work. Doesn't matter how big you are, they're still not working as well as you would like them to. And what's cool here is that oftentimes it's product that can create the breakthrough or sometimes it's customer success, but often it's the combination of those people talking together that leads to recognizing, okay, we should solve this in the product or no, we can't solve this in the product. Let's solve it by using some people here or let's use some marketing materials instead of the people that we're currently using because that's much more cost effective. So yeah, that's the growth group and that's the tool that I think should be used and that meeting should be a very regular meeting to understand and analyze, you know, what's not working well in your growth process and how do you go about diagnosing and fixing it? The other element that I do have to ask that you mentioned was kind of the on-premise, very heavy touch customer service element and often actually really moving into the services revenue in a lot of cases that I'm seeing today. My question to you is VCs always wince when they hear services revenue, but actually in many cases, it's quite high margin. I'm seeing 45, 50% services revenue in terms of the margin itself. And when it's 25 to 30% of revenue, is it really that bad? And what do you think is a dangerous ratio of services to SaaS revenue? Yeah, I don't think it's that bad. I also will say though, that the more a business is able to do things touchlessly, the more profitable those businesses are. So naturally, VCs will try to gravitate towards ones where there's less of this. But having said that, there are many, many very, very successful SaaS companies where there's something like 30 to 35% of services revenue. And it's a real key to how they're able to get the expansion out of the customer and to make the customer really, really get the benefits out of the product. And I don't think there's any issues with that at all. If it starts to get beyond 50% services revenue, that's a big red flag to me that this isn't any longer a real product company. And you know, I would personally prefer it probably not to be much above, say, 35, 40, just to give very, very rough outlines for that. No, I, I totally agree with you in terms of those outlines. And I, I do want to touch on some more incredibly unfair outlines of me to ask, but I do want to touch on kind of brass tacks and the profitable element that we have to hit on. So in terms of the cash element, what numbers are you looking for when it comes to, say, payback period one and then CAC to LTV? So payback period, from my original blog post that I wrote in 2008, I was the person who put out that it should happen within 12 months. And I still stick by that. But in truth, the whole reason why I put that in there is because this is a metric that really defines how capital efficient your company will be in its growth process. So the more months it takes you to recover CAC, the more capital it's going to chew up when you start growing your business. Having said the 12-month thing, though, I've now found that not many companies actually really get to that, to be honest. I think a much more common number that I'm seeing is 18 to 20 months for businesses. There are still lots of you know really good businesses that I can point to that have the 12-month or less payback period, but unfortunately, they're rarer than I would have liked to have seen. So 18 months, I would say anything over 24 months is something that you should be very well worried about and want to make sure you have a clear path to seeing how you're going to fix that. And then LTV to CAC, I originally wrote, I thought I thought that needed to be at least three times LTV to CAC ratio. And I still stick by that. I think that one actually has been borne out remarkably well with practical experience over the last, whatever it is, 12 years, I guess we're talking about now, of looking at SaaS companies. You know, the really good SaaS companies are considerably above the three number, but if you're below the three number, you're almost certainly not viable and really need to go and fix that. I'm surprised you said about the 18 months on the payback period there. What would your 
expectations be then on churn given actually the length they're being considerably longer than I was expecting more nine months today actually ah okay right, yeah it's rare to see nine it's really hard to achieve the key things that I'm really looking for companies I believe you have to be able to achieve negative churn and what do I mean by that it means that if you take a cohort of customers that you signed in say January and you look at them a year later but even though you've lost some customers from that cohort the overall cohort should be producing more revenue than it did when you've originally signed it up in January. And that's negative churn. That means instead of churning in a direction where you're losing, you're actually gaining revenue out of your cohorts. So to get that, companies have to have a couple of important things. One of them is they must have a way for each customer that signs up to expand its usage of the product and pay more. And it's funny that it seems like an obvious thing these days, but in HubSpot in the early days, we didn't have that. We actually had a single price point. Everybody paid $500 a month for the product and there was no way to get expansion revenue from our customers. So that was a key challenge we had to figure out was how to increase pricing over time and have some kind of usage metric that went up with it. The important reason why you have to get to this is churn is going to happen. You will lose customers. I've just never seen any business where you didn't lose any customers at all. And if you don't have negative churn, every business that I've been associated with that didn't have negative churn was really struggling. And it's only when you crack that, that the SaaS model really starts to work really well. And I think if you look at every one of the truly successful SaaS businesses out there that have gone public, this is one of the key factors that they can point to is that they have greater than 100% dollar revenue retention for their cohorts. Can I ask, when you have those kind of incredible cohorts and you have that incredible retention, in terms of speed, why is it important to get as fast as you can? And I guess, what are your thoughts on the mechanics of the winner-take-all flywheel? So I think we're in a winner-take-all environment most of the time in the high-tech software business. So as soon as one company shows that there's profit to be made in an area, this market is so efficient in terms of new ideas flowing around and venture capital to back those new ideas that you will almost inevitably get competitors. But what we see is that there is a winner-take-all dynamic so that once one company starts to become looking like it's the leader, that's where buyers tend to prefer to buy. They prefer to buy from that leader simply because it's safer for them that that company's not going to go out of business. But you also get other effects like you get an ecosystem. So look at Salesforce right now. Even though their product is widely regarded as a terrible CRM product, it's still used by everybody because the ecosystem of other products that have been built around Salesforce make it capable of doing so many powerful and interesting things just doesn't exist for other competitors, or at least they may have a much smaller ecosystem. So they can't offer the full range of solutions for so many people. And then you get this effect that the company gets written about in the press, so they get far cheaper customer acquisition. Word of mouth is great. There's lots of forces that reinforce the winner once they start to become the winner. So what that means is that if you hit the point where you're ready to scale and you've got repeatable, you've got scalable, and you've got profitable, I believe you really need to hit the gas hard. And it's easy to hit the gas hard because typically if you are repeatable, scalable, and profitable, you can raise growth capital very easily and good valuations. And you should go and raise that capital and invest that capital in this cash-making machine that you've created and scale as fast as you can do to get the winner-takes-all benefits and to prevent a competitor from displacing you from that winner-take-all position. I totally agree in terms of that winner-take-all and just the importance of moving as fast as you can. I do want to, on the element of moving as fast as you can, I do want to go into our quick fire round, David. So you've done this before, but essentially I say a short statement and you hit me with your immediate thoughts. About 60 seconds per one. Are you ready to dive in? Far away. Yep. So what's the favorite book and why? What must I be reading this year? So this is not a new book, but it is absolutely my favorite book. It's Sapiens. And I think it's one of the most incredibly thought-provoking books because it explains why we are where we are in history and what could happen next and things that we need to do to shape that correctly. Tell me, who's the best board member you sat on a board with and why? What made them so 
great. A while back, I might have been able to answer that, but I've now had the good fortune to work with a whole load of really great board members. So I'm not going to give any one name because I know that I would accidentally insult some of the terrific people I've worked with. And I would say, this is an amazing thing. The US, specifically the US, and I don't think this is really yet true in Europe or UK, is blessed with some really great investor board members and some non-investor board members. So I think it's possible to get fabulous board members in the US for startups. What advice would you give to me, having just joined my first board within the last 12 months? You've been on many. What would be your big advice to me? First thing I would tell you is that management team, focusing on the team, is far more important than you might think. I think you probably you know, might pay lip service to it if you were like me. I paid lip service to this when I was first a venture capitalist. But over time, it became increasingly apparent to me that there is nothing more important than you can do as a VC than help to build the team. Oftentimes, the founder that you work with doesn't recognize what a great team looks like, doesn't realize why they need them, and they need to be pushed quite hard by the VC who's often got this pattern recognition of, okay, in six months' time, you're going to run into this problem, so we need to start recruiting now because if we don't do it now, it'll take six months to recruit somebody. And so helping build that team is one of the most powerful ways that a venture capitalist is able to really positively impact a portfolio company. The second one is keep the company tightly focused. And the way to bring the focus to them is to work backwards from their next fundraising. So after they first got money from you, everybody's celebrating, they've got all this cash, suddenly it feels like they can do all these things. The truth is they can't do all these things and they don't have much time. And the best way to get them to realize that is to focus in on, okay, what do we have to do to be successful in our next fundraising? And you'll quickly have them realize, oh my God, it's very little time and not enough resources. And that generally is the most important thing for them to accomplish so they can successfully survive as a business. They must go through, typically they're going to be going through some of these nine stages that we talked about. They've got to get the sales process repeatable. They've got to make it scalable or they've got to prove that it's profitable to get their next round. And I think that's a great way to really have everybody understand what's got to be done in the company. Well, I think I should invoice you for the advice because that was fantastic. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the start of your time in venture? If you're being self-reflective. Yeah, it's actually the two points that I just gave you above. But really, the biggest thing that I wish I'd known is this nine-stage model. I knew it from my own experiences in little bits and pieces, but I hadn't properly, properly understood just how crucial it was to go through these steps one by one and not try to jump ahead. And when I look at my own mistakes, they all fall in the bucket of jumping ahead on this nine-stage model. And all of my portfolio companies, we've all done it at some point in time, and it's been very costly, both in cash and in terms of delay of getting where we needed to get to. What would you most like to change about the world of venture and tech today? So when I first joined the tech world, I loved what I was doing because I felt I could be very proud of the fact that our industry wasn't like mining or certain others that kind of stripped the earth. We did good things and almost everything we did was about doing good things and the people in the industry were good. I think sadly along the way, recently, we've discovered that our industries accidentally managed to do some bad things. And I think we've got a great responsibility to anticipate what these might be, particularly with things like artificial intelligence that's coming along, and also to fix some of the negative things that have been caused by tech, like the election interference and and stuff like that that's been damaged by social media, and possibly things like attention span of kids who are overly focused on screen time versus real face-to-face interactions with other human beings. And then the final one, David, what's the most recent publicly announced investment, and why did you say yes and get so excited? So a company called Apollo GraphQL would be one that I'd highlight. I love this company. They're building a brand new data API that allows all of the company's data to be represented and very, very quickly and easily built into an application. So amazing opportunity. It's a layer that I believe everybody's likely to adopt over time. So a a massive situation where it looks like this GraphQL layer is going to become a standard part of everybody's 
development stack. And the reason why I made the investment was simple, was the quality of the founders. Two individuals, Jeff Schmidt and Matt de Burglis, who were just spectacularly smart people and just a pleasure to work with. So it really just came down to assessing the fact that these were phenomenal individuals that really likely had this ability to read the future and can execute on it. David, as I said at the beginning, I always so love our chats. As I said before our call, I just love your voice. So this has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for joining me again today. Harry, great pleasure as always. It's so much fun talking to you. I mean, just such an incredible guest to have on the show. As you can tell, I just always so enjoy my conversations with David. He's always been there for me and he's been hugely supportive. So I really do appreciate his time there. If you'd like to see more from him, you can find him on Twitter at BostonVC. Likewise, his blog, fourentrepreneurs.com, really is a must. I cannot recommend that enough. And if you'd like to see us behind the scenes, you can do so on Instagram at hstubbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Cordoba. Cordoba is the leading AI writing assistant used by companies like Intuit and Twitter to keep content on brand. These days, literally everyone with a company writes content, and because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year for their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash that's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way of attracting new customers, but another way is to increase conversion and to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements. Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including leaders of industry like Brex, Open Door, and Carfax. And as a special offer for SASTA listeners, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired those customers, that's just the beginning. And that's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta and then hit the Get Started button. It's as simple as it sounds. Start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Again, sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM at zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week with Carl Sun, founder and CEO at Lucid Chart.